0: Hello and welcome to the Woodard Report Podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify, the expense management app that does it all for every business. We are also proudly sponsored by File, easy expense management via text messaging. For more information about both Expensify and File, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, everyone, I'm here with a very good friend of mine and somebody I respect in the space, uh, Bob Lewis. And we're going to tell you a little bit more about him, but the first thing I wanna lead out with is Bob shares the designation alongside me and has for many years. Uh, Being one of the top 100 most influential people in accounting is recognized by accounting today, which means, Bob, if we are both on a plane together and the plane crashes, the industry will lose 2% of its thought leadership. I don't know if you've ever done the math on that, but just, you know, I I know it's really complex math, but uh, the point is uh, he is a thought leader and he is highly influential within the space. Now, if you've not encountered Bob before... It may be because you're not a top 200 firm, that is his ideal client profile. But if you're not a top 200 firm, I want you to still pay a lot of attention to what Bob says because in the top 200, Bob is among other kinds of expertise he gives and guidance and coaching he provides. He's a mergers and acquisitions expert. It's what he's most known for. And a lot of the top 200 eat themselves. (laughs) <laughs> being whimsical. So so he's <laughs> there as they do that to help them guide through that process. But a lot of times the top 200 also buy the three to 500. But what we're finding, and I'm going to discuss with Bob, is a lot of the top 500 are buying the non-credentialed small practices. Um, and we're going to talk about why and how you can prepare yourself for that. And they we're going to talk about the larger trends that mergers and acquisitions indicate and drive within the industry What is the impact they're having on the whole of the accounting profession? Really big topic. Great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast, Bob.
1: Appreciate being here, Joe. I just want to add to the audience that since Joe and I are both in the top 100 most influential, you can see how low the bar is set (laughs) in that top 100. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it's really a lot of really good people that are out there. Well, I think there. you're
0: number 99 and I'm number 100. And we go back and forth and fight for those two spots every, every
1: year. Fortunately, they do it by alphabetical order. So, you know. It's always, exactly. You know, kind of you know, that means
0: I'm always almost last. Uh, there's yeah. typically somebody who's a, a Y or a Z on there, but you're in the dead middle. Um, so, but yeah. uh, but let's talk about uh, this this whole mergers and acquisitions trend that's going on. And uh, there's a very heavy emphasis right now on two big undercurrents. One of them is private equity, and the other one is client accounting services, which for those of you that aren't as familiar with that term, CAS or client accounting services, sometimes called client accounting and advisory services, is um, both a fancy word for professional bookkeeping and also an elevation of the model. So when you hear CAS, think professional bookkeeping on steroids. Okay, Um, so CAS, client accounting services, and PE are driving big changes in what's happening with mergers and acquisitions, uh, but also some other factors like staffing shortages as well. So let's start with let's start with PE. All right, what's private equity doing within the industry? How's that reshaping what's happening in the big firms?
1: Okay, so it's moving really at a fast pace. So the initial private equity opportunities that everyone read about in accounting today in the inside public accounting, there were large, large firms that accepted private equity money, transferred some or all of their ownership. And the conditions on all of those are are confidential because some private equity companies are buying 100 percent of the firm. some are buying 60, 70 percent of the firm. So if you ever heard the term second bite of the apple, okay, which I love that term, uh, if I only sell 60% of my firm to Joe, as we continue to grow, I still own 40%. So if we continue to grow the second time we may sell the practice, I still have 40% ownership. So Joe, we invented the other day a third bite of the apple. So let's assume I sell my, I, I still own 40% and we have a second sale and I only sell 20% of that. I still have another 20%. That's my third bite, but we'll see where that one goes. Point of matter is private equity is is, is changing the valuation on firms. They've been looking, ideally, they they love to get a 10 $15, 20000000 million plus firm. Um, and right now, those valuations have at least increased most firms about 50% in value what they were getting on the open market to maybe almost twice as much as they were getting in a traditional transaction. So it's kind of changing how every firm looks at doing an acquisition. Now, with that said, everybody does not want to go to private equity. That's, there's a, there's a, a religious kind of component in play or kind of like some firms don't want to do wealth management because they think it's a it's not right for whatever reason, and that's okay. Um, but, but the private equity model, the money is quite compelling. And there's a lot of myths out there on private equity. There are a lot of private equity companies coming in telling very different stories, which some of them are insane. Uh, we had one the other day where the firm told us that it's part of the ongoing agreement. They wanted 5% of the firm's revenue. I'm like, that's a big, that's a big piece of, that's a big piece of, of the layer on top of the ownership. Point of the matter is, no matter what's going to impact the industry, it's going to be here for a while still. And the next stage of this is the second tier. So as they buy platform firms across a different part of the country, I'm going to start now doing tuck-ins. So if I buy a platform firm in Chicago, I'm out of Chicago. I pick that city to be neutral, okay? Um, they buy a, a $20 million platform from Chicago, they're going to start tucking in fives and fours and threes and eights because that's what they're looking for to continue to expand it and eventually potentially sell it again. Um, and that's the next part that's a mystery. Is,
0: so this PE then is largely about inorganic growth. I mean, the PE wants to land and expand through acquisition.
1: Two, two stage. So they, they, they want, they want to add, so I'm like $20 million in Chicago. I'm going to add a five and I'm at 25. They're going to continue to look at, do I begin to refine how I offshore, Okay, or outsource would be a better term because it's really the outsourcing could be offshoring, it could be nearshoring, it could be insourcing, all kinds of options on that. Uh, How do they add more services? How do they start expanding advisory services into the client base that maybe that $20 or $5 million firm didn't have the ability to do? How do they buy the technology needed for like artificial intelligence? We had a fascinating conversation with a, a firm just a little under $10 million the other day who has dumped a ton of money into their own internal technology development. To reduce the number of hours in an audit it's if if it's interesting what they've done and the investment that they've made, but. Those are investments most firms aren't going to make that firm has made a $4 million investment over the last two years. And they're a little under $10 million, so you can imagine the commitment it takes to invest $2 million a year if you're an eight $9 million firm that's that's made that's a material investment. Private equity can handle that they can absorb it they've also got a lot of other partners in place that can begin to like an introduce like an insurance company into your client base. That's where this industry is going Um, because the firms are eventually shaping themselves more into advisors. They're advisors that provide tax services. accounting, Which is a
0: great way to kind of segue to how does does client accounting services, client accounting advisor services play into this? First, is there a direct connection between that and the appeal of private equity, right? Market factors that they may be looking at. So that's number one. Number two, um, where do you see the organic growth happening? right, uh, it, 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 between tax and CAS. So first, PE's motivation. Second, that the organic growth uh, between tax and CAS and that, that dance. And I've got a third for you, and I'll I'll tee these up as we go, is what are the implications for the non-credentialed CAS practice or smaller CPA firm who's mastered CAS? All right, so let's start with PE's motivation. How much of that is influenced by the market factors of CAS?
1: Well, Kaz is kind of a piece of the mix. Um, Look, one of the problems in this accounting industry, the CPA world, and it's not, but first of all, let me clarify. CPA, anybody who's looking at the CPA profession, the accounting profession, it is a phenomenal profession. The income levels are, are, are tremendous. The ability to transform and, and and make firms even better more efficient, better places to live is there. The, the biggest problem with the CPA world are the regulatory deadlines. No matter how hard we try, I got a 1231 year end, okay? For God knows what percentage of the companies in the United States, okay? I've got a 415 tax deadline for individual payers. I've got other deadlines that are out there for benefit plans. So these deadlines kind of drive a lot of the, the problem. Now, what I like about the CAS model And why to move in more of the advisory, advisory services have no deadlines other than what I may have made a commitment, Joe, to you. I'm going to try and resolve a project for you. We're going to shoot for a deadline of whatever. But if I miss it, I miss it. It's not like there's typically a penalty involved in that. What I like about the CAS model is it streamlines revenue over a 12-month period. So I have an audit due. I have a 1231 client. Audits due, you know, April, May, whatever, whatever extensions, whatever, it's mandatory, it's required this audit is filed, same thing with the tax return. I can take that audit revenue, shift it over to CAS, okay? And I can have a 12-month revenue stream coming through, granted I have deadlines in CAS just like you have in others, but if you've got it right and you're using a systematic approach with technology, eventually you're going to be using more bots and AI to do that. You're going to be putting it all in your back room. My vision of CAS is it will become the largest component in firm that will also drive the advisory services inside the firm because the connection and the relationships there and there's no independence problem.
0: So it's going to take the throne from tax?
1: No, it'll oh, share that's the That's interesting because some people are making it will, so I'd
0: unpack that for me.
1: It'll share it. Okay. I think it's going to take the throne away from assurance, which is also another concern because, you know, if, if, I don't know if you know this, Joe. But there's a stock market um, that in the United States, this is a publicly traded companies, and there's in this, there isn't a stock market. Those those publicly traded companies all all need to have assurance work done, audits done, confirmations, validation, so we know that the prices, everything helps set the market right. I've got loan covenants from banks, okay? They need work. I've got benefit plans when I hit a certain point. Those are requirements. I got money coming in from the federal government that requires an audit to make sure the money is being spent on. So, assurance work's never going to go away. But what a lot of firms are looking at is, can I shift some of those insurance clients into CAS clients, make it a 12-month revenue stream, decrease the the pressure and compression going on in that period for my compliance audits, and then how do I then begin to offshore more of my audit work, which has been a big growing trend over the last few years as we're picking up auditors in different countries because we don't have enough in the U.S. I see CAS becoming a huge and dominant piece, and it's coming out of the that's why bookkeeping is a little bit of a dirty word. <laughs> like, oh, bookkeeping yeah, because it, because back it to like
0: it's oh. a more trade as opposed to the, in, in the perception of some. It, you yeah, know, it's,
1: it, it just it just doesn't give the vision of of I'm an advisor that's working. Look, you know, if you if your if your CAS office is giving me all these really cool things that are tied into my metrics and my key performance indicators specific to my company, and you can do that if you put the proper tech stacks in place. Where CAS is struggling a little bit, in my opinion. It's just still firms are still trying to do it all internally. So my CAS person's doing all my transaction work. What should be happening, and this is my vision, which is, you know, it depends on on how everyone looks at it. I think I would like to push my CAS transactional model out to India, to the Philippines, to South Africa, to Mexico, wherever the offshoring is. Set up my tech stacks, have my CAS people in-house in the domestic U.S. Be the ones that take the information from that group help them design what needs to go into that and then be the client interface to talk to the client about the results, to talk about what's going on in their business. I think that's where this industry is going to go because now my in-house CIS people, if they had a bandwidth of, I don't know, 15, 20 clients a year, a month, I have no idea each firm is going to be different. I can now double that without burdening these people and having to have work 90 hours a week because I've got my back office doing all the transactional work. and. I've made my investments in bots and, and AI, all into the software tools that are out there that my back office can do.
0: Tax is never gonna plus, go. Plus then go. you streamline the tax season too, cause you're not trying to do an annual compilation, get a tax return out. You're not having to extend as many returns. So, so yeah, I like, I like what you're saying. It's not so much take the throne from as share the throne. Cause ca- I do foresee a future where tax advisory and um, tax client advisory services and accounting and tax advisory services, right, are all one offering. Right? Yes. They're, they're they're an amalgam. Seemers. And and if, to kind of put it into Ron Baker's uh, format, they use subscription economics increasingly, which I, I would think the PE would understand better. Yes. Right? So it's not just that it's recurring revenue. It's a portfolio where you can track MRR, ARR, CAC, lifetime value. Um, and yep. Ron, I think Ron. Really done some amazing thought leadership in bringing those principles to the industry, uh, not just when it comes to funding, but just they're better measurements and they help you focus on the right thing. Um, so, and then I really like what you mentioned too about taking these seasonal spikes and and leveling them a little bit, either easing the tax regulatory timeframes with good books, or um, and. and uh simultaneously creating recurring revenue that's that's that doesn't have the spikes there's a little year end 1099 kind of you know thing and you have your quarterly payroll spikes but it's so much more level and well, the monetization model is so much better your point on the tax throne here's the other part tax just like audit
1: just like see C- everybody's having on labor shortage that's not going to go away okay I, i'm not sure why but you can you can blame it on the five-year certification you can blame it at all honestly what really i think the reason why we're having a material labor shortage in accounting the deadlines are one but what's happening is students have more options they just have more options coming they're going to go into tech they're going to go into different areas and so we're competing with more people with more industries really not so much more people and we're we're basically splitting the base of students into more buckets but what i do like about the CS model is the mundane tax work that a lot of these firms have to have to do, because it's again, it's required, right? If I've got a CES model in place, that becomes almost a non-event. So I can take and scrape off layers of non-event tax work that I'm miring onto my domestic team, that's going to be basically automated and done for me. The more complex tax issues, that's never going to get automated because there's so much, I'll use the word interpretation and inconsistency, on some of the more complex tax laws that you're not really going to be able to automate that. But you can automate all the lower end stuff and free up my time for the people that are in my tax department to deal with the more difficult, complex things, which is what they want to do anyway. They It's like nobody wants to reconcile a bank account anymore. That was, that was bread and butter work for CPA firms 20 years ago. Imagine telling a student now, yeah, you're going to sit and do bank reconciliations all day long. You won't, you won't be able to attract anybody to work for you. And the cost would be astronomical to do it.
0: Absolutely, and so I, I like to compare the CPA firm of the future. And you heard me do this. I think you were in San Diego and heard me do this at my the future of CAS. Yeah. Uh, that the that the the CPA firm of the future, and especially the CAS department of the future, is likened into a hospital. So when you're talking about and and I I have a, a nephew who's basically an orderly, and then he's going he's using the re, the revenues from that job to put himself through nursing school. So, you know, that that's what I would with all due respect to bookkeepers, they're heroes. So are orderlies. Could you imagine a hospital without them, right? These are heroic human serving roles that are great. However, it is metaphorically speaking, the emptying bedpans of the accountancy. It's it's the it's the orderly work. And what I would encourage, um, and I may get some flack from that, Bob, and I don't mean to degrade the bookkeepers. I'm elevating you, promoting you and saying that that's an amazing service of humanity. But but I want you to hear what Bob says. That's where the bots are going to do most of the work. And that's where outsourcing is going to do what the bots can't do. And if you try to stay there, however noble it may be and however much you may enjoy it. My nephew loves his job. I can't do that job. I have a squeaky stomach. He loves that job. <laughs> And he actually loves the people that he's trying to help. Um, Noble thing. He can't stay where he is because your robotics is actually already starting to displace the work of the orderly in hospitals. So as you move your way up the credentialing chain, you protect yourself more and more, but I don't want bookkeepers to think they have to become CFOs or that they have to become CPAs. You can move yourself up relatively speaking metaphorically speaking, you know, you have to be credentialed in a hospital, but you can move yourself up the chain through skill sets like controllership services and, and, and advisory services without an MBA, without a CPA, because they're learned skills. And it's about the outcomes you drive. It's about the knowledge you possess. And I really like this concept of controllership skills because that's more operational accounting. And I think the imposter syndrome issue with a non-credentialed CAS worker is lower um, than trying to say I'm a fractional CFO. That feels like a little bit of an oversell. But to say that I can help you reduce your spend or I can help you mitigate bad debt expense, I can curate a budget, um, I can I can create purchase order processings to control o- over expenditures on the cost side. And, and I can help you manage your fixed asset strategies, not just your accounting. And all these things a controller does, including Sitting down and having operational level meetings with ownership about the financial information, I think everybody listening to this podcast feels like they can either do it or stretch to it. Right. Um, but that gets me into my next topic now. When I talk about the non credentialed worker, which you just rightfully said is ripe for disruption if they stay where they are. I'm putting words, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm just rephrasing your, your conclusion. Yeah. Right. Uh, between outsourcing and bots. So a couple of things. I just gave a pathway where the non-credentialed worker can promote themselves. It's controllership services, right? But I'm going to ask you a question from your realm of expertise. How can a non-credentialed CAS practice make themselves appealing to your your buyers, your buyer market that you work with, these these large
1: CPA firms? Well, I wanted to add on to what you're saying. This will tie perfectly into answering your question. OK, so first thing is think of packaging. So when you talk about moving into CFO controller, that's a, that's great. Think about packaging. So if you're if you're doing my accounting work and it's a monthly operation or quarterly, prefer, preferably monthly, but let's, let's say whatever, however, delivery is. Right. What do I get from you? If I get an income statement and it looks like a, an income statement, Okay, and there's there's nothing here that talks about what's unique to my organization, what metrics I should be tracking. I mean, everyone has key metrics they should be looking at. There's basic industry ratios, but there's drivers inside my company. Like, is an example in an auto dealership. I cut my teeth in an auto focused CPA firm when I first started this industry. There's things you look for, like a used car to new car ratio turns, finance and insurance penetration. I'm looking at these metrics and the accountants coming back and giving them those metrics. And if they're off those metrics, they know what they need to do is go back in and train their salespeople on how to do certain things. Is the metrics in an auto dealership are fascinating. It's like they actually, they actually track the number of walks. Like if I walk into a dealership and don't buy a car and then Joe, if you're the salesperson and you've got a high number of walks, odds, odds are you're probably out or in, or in some kind of a bad spot in my firm in my organization. But packaging is huge. So when you're talking about the services that you do, the better you package them and then explain them, which is a second stage, communication to the client, the more valuable you become. Otherwise, you just look like a commodity if it's just I get a tax, I get an income statement, a balance sheet, and nothing else from it. I want to see some, some graphs. I want to see graphs that are relevant to me. So the setup should initially be Bob, what you know, what what are the drivers that make an impact in your company? I get I'm getting crushed on DSO. So how do I how do I look, DSOs day sales outstanding? Sorry, I, I, I learned to explain that because somebody asked me what DSO was once. Um, if I'm getting crushed because I got people not paying me for ninety days, maybe I have to change my
0: pricing strategy or how I begin to take Joe on. As yeah, the platform. terms of your agreements yeah. and things like that. The second, but Bobby, thing you, you raise a, an interesting point because the market there's really a trifurcation of the market. Uh, a lot of the non-credentialed service people that not only don't know what a DSO is they also have no inclination to care because they don't see the connection to their daily pain and they're struggling to survive and they're just trying to get their widget out the door and solve the latest extruder malfunction that's not working, right? They're just, they can't see that way. The second level are those that can and can be taught to care. And then the third level are are those that already know that they need to be tracking it, and they need somebody to serve the information out, prioritize it, and interpret it. And 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 so if if in the non-credentialed space, it's mostly that category of they're not even inclined to care. So so I, I want you to hear what Bob says. His DSO example is just one of many metrics that matter. Um, but when you're servicing your industry i don't want you to to dismiss what bob said because of the fact that your client doesn't care hear me non-credentialed cas person servicing very small businesses it doesn't matter if they care or not you have to care for them right like i don't really care i care but i'm not consciously thinking about is the plane in a good operating condition are we at the right altitude are we at the right, you know, uh, headwind to, to thrust ratio? I, I really, I care, but I don't care. My job is to get to the destination and finish my audiobook. book. I, I only want the pilot to tell me all the stuff on their dashboard when it's time for me to either put my seatbelt on or put my head between my legs, right? So so non-credentialed CAS people hear what Bob is saying. The metrics matter, even if they don't matter to your client. And don't over communicate if it's that kind of client. Just tell them when to put their seatbelt on. But don't forget too that there are the other two pieces of the trifurcation. There are those that can be taught to care, and those that already do care and need you to serve it out. Okay, go ahead, Bob.
1: So, Joe, let's 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 talk about pricing for a minute. Not pricing of the CIS service. Here's what you should be doing. Okay. Uh, in the CPA world, the accounting world, it's typically 30% margin, 35, depends on the firm. But let's just use 30% for easy math. If I'm making 30% margin, okay, and, I'm, and you're, you're sitting there and you've got all this data because you're the accounting back office for these people. You're the, you're the people for whatever size company it is. And you come at me and tell Bob, you know, your pricing, you know, if you change your pricing by just 6%, okay, and here's what the dollar would be per pricing per client, this is what the impact would be on your bottom line. So let's so let's look at materiality here I've got a 20 I've got a fifty thousand dollar audit and you increase the fee by twenty percent I'm gonna notice that it's ten thousand dollars okay I go into the grocery store and the gallon of milk went from three dollars to five that's a much larger increase in price right am I gonna buy the gallon of milk at five dollars probably okay so when you're looking at it, Pricing is huge. If you can come back to me and tell me, look, here's some things you can do. Here's some things you can do to turn your inventory. Here's some things you can do to cut your day sales outstanding. Why do I want to cut my day sales outstanding? I don't want to borrow more money. I may need to borrow money. Hell, half of us, excuse me, half of us just work off a checkbook. Okay, I got this amount of money to make. I'm good for four more months. I'm good. But if I can have more money in the bank, I can maybe do some things with that money. And I also want to cut down my my write-offs and my bad debt. These are things that the CAS people can really bring to the table with just a little bit more insight that's why i'm a big advocate of taking as much as you can and getting the transactional off of your desk because the real knowledge the CAS people have is the ability to help me figure out how to make my business better but they get too mired up and stuck in doing the transactional and not enough on the advisory clients really value the advisory they can get the transactional from anybody and it may not be good but to be blunt, most of your clients don't even know if you're doing a bad job. I hate to no, say that. No, they don't.
0: They don't. They <laughs> don't. Right. Because I, I don't really, I, again, kind of coming back to the utility perspective of it, I, I have no idea you know, how the power company is serving sing out the lights in my home. And I don't know if some technicians working on the fact that I'm on backup power, reserve power, if I'm feeding from this plant or that plant, That that's the way that the the business owner perceives your bookkeeping. Until the lights go out, they don't notice that it's there. So, um, it's very passive approach, but, but, uh, to, to Bob's point, if you can have meaningful conversations with the client and I can't stress enough, it does not mean becoming a financial coach necessarily in step one or even ever, it just means the meaningful conversation. It could be five to 10 data points that matter to everybody. And you, you get some tools in place, learn how to do them, tell them when to put the seatbelt on. If they just know you're watching. The peace of mind alone is extremely valuable. But while yeah. while we're talking about driving price up, Bob, uh, if I'm going to be an appealing seller, what is the buyer looking for on average client per average revenue per client per month? What do they want to see, and what's the smallest client that they would include in a portfolio? Because I know, like, if you if they're listeners that have three four hundred bucks a month, if they've got you know five hundred dollars a quarter. I already know that the buyers don't want those things, but where's the cutoff?
1: Look, um, it also depends on the size firm you would be going into. Okay. So if I'm a $6 million firm buying a million-dollar CAS practice, my client base at the $6 million is going to be go a little different than the one at $16 million. In the CAS space, in my opinion, and, and people are going to go, oh, this is horrible. Okay, but it is what it is. If you've got CAS work, uh, monthly CAS work under $1,000, it just tells me about your entire practice, the size of your clients, and probably the upside that I can't really find in the client base. Now, could I could I increase your fees from 1000 to 1200 and make 20% more off of that if I, if I acquired you? Maybe. Um, people are looking for $1,500, $2,000 a month kind of clients, $2,500 and up. Uh, they're looking really, though, f- for the CAS infrastructure. They want people. They're not buying a book. Most firms are not buying your CAS book. They're buying your infrastructure, your people, your systems, how you're set up, because I can take your CAS infrastructure from a larger firm, pop that in place and feed it with better work. Because I've got clients that need this work. Clients are having the same issue. They can't find accountants just like we can't find accountants to staff firms. So for them to make it easier for you to outsource the whole thing to a client, takes that monkey off their back. I don't know any manufacturing company or distribution company or engineering company that went into business to do accounting. That's just something they have to do. They want to focus on selling and delivering the products and services that they have. And they're going to rely on us to make that happen. So if you've got a really cool tech stack and you're doing it the right way and you've got a younger bench and if you've automated as much as possible, that makes you really attractive. But $500 a month clients, that's like going to, we talk to firms that have $500 Five hundred dollar a month tax tax returns, ten forties. Nobody wants them. Literally, nobody nobody wants them. Uh, and when you find you start increasing the pricing, that there's very little resistance because unfortunately your clients have nowhere else to go. I hate to say that you'll lose some, but that's okay.
0: Um, well, yeah, and that and and it, it's also too that they trust you and they don't want to have to try to. Is a cost in changing from tax preparer A to tax preparer B, and can I trust this person and and so forth. Plus the the reality is you can you can say to them we've been grossly underpriced so it's not so much I'm charging you more as I gave you a discount all these years right there's all about framing yeah um, but but I want you to really hear what what Bob's saying here is anything under a thousand that feels like a concrete floor they're gonna tend to either disqualify you for purchase or they're gonna throw those out of the portfolio when they start buying it um, so the, the second is um, that that's a concrete floor. Don't make that the goal, make that the concrete floor. Um, and the, the other is I, I, I am hearing you, I don't know if it's accidental, but you tend to only talk in millions. So are people interested in buying a book of business even at a thousand and above per client if it's under a million? Or are they looking for a million plus businesses? Ideally, they're looking for a million plus, but now they'll look at a good infrastructure under a million. They will. Okay, so if you can make up the difference on intellectual properties, systems, technology, platforms, automation, they'll they'll do it for the IP buy. But I would think that that would be like a one and done, right? Because once you have all that systems and process, you're not going to buy it again over and over again. You're buying it like Aprio did with Aprio Cloud. You buy it to use it to land and expand. Correct. So yeah. Um, so the real the real takeaway here is IP is is huge. Systems process is huge, or let's call it scalability, even if it didn't have the scale, is huge. But you got to get that revenue run rate annually up to a million. You got to make your smallest client a $1,000 a month. And if you don't get anything else from this podcast, get to a million in annual revenue and and get all of your clients up to a 1000 a month or more on, yeah. on your CAS work. That, to me, has been the biggest of all the big takeaways here for the small firms listening in, right? The, the mis-
1: mistake that a lot of firms make is they hold on to the old client because it's there and it consume all the capacity and time. Yes. The second part is it's comfortable and easier to sell to a smaller organization because I can get in the door and I can sell on price and it's an easier sell. It's harder to sell uh, at, at a higher level, but you should be more selective in this capacity challenged environment right now. Don't burn your resources on people that can't afford it. They're the wrong clients. And yep. honestly, one of our other staff members here came up with an ingenious thing in a conference the other day. How I'm embarrassed I hadn't thought of this. You've got their tax return, you know how much they make.
0: So, so you know the value you can bring relative you know, to their organization. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly.
1: And if the tax return is horrible, then because there's not enough revenue or a profit, or in the that's the wrong client. Yes, exactly right. So what I
0: tell people, Bob, and this is kind of getting a little bit off the MA topic, but this will help you get to the $1,000 a month minimum, is uh, don't price the client at the outset of the relationship for the cyclical work. You've got a step before then, maybe two. The very first thing you sell, the very first product you sell is an assessment. Because, yeah. Bob, you were mentioning, I'm already doing the corporate tax return. Well, then, okay, I have visibility. But a lot of these folks listening in, The very first point of contact is, I want you to do my accounting services, right? So do an assessment, get paid for the assessment, and flat fee the assessment. And if you make a little or lose a little on that, that's not the battle, that's a battle, that's not the war you're fighting. It's to get the information. And then you might have a second step, Bob, which is get them to pay you to clean up the past and catch up the past so you're not inheriting all that mess. And it's not presumed upon the cyclical re- re- engagement, right? Right. And then after they've paid you to do that optionally because you could do the line in the sand approach and 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 then you pick up the cyclical work. But in that process, I want you to b- take the biggest pay- takeaway from Bob here is it puts a filter on the front door. It's not just what price I charge the client. It's should I take the client, right?
1: Yeah, exactly right. I, yes. I just turned one down this morning because I already know that it's going to go bad. They're asking questions. They're they're asking questions to me that tell me that it's going to be a problem down the line. I said that they should go somewhere else, and I turned yes. down the retainer that I, we had put out there, and I said not a good fit. One thing I want to add to this, Joe, before we wrap it, think of, here's where CS is really critical critical to me. Think about the client you've got your fingers wrapped around the spine of that client you know all the information you can see all the points you have no real independence issues or concerns and you can be a really core advisor to that client once you start telling me a couple things and start bonding with me and sharing the, the right i feel really that like i can trust you i'm going to pay you more if your fees go up i can't get rid of you it's very difficult to get rid of a cas group if they're doing a phenomenal job, if they are just providing me an income statement and a balance sheet that I file.
0: Yes, you to, you become and a I can go out and shopping a... and I may jump from a frying pan to the fire or I may jump into the fire because I may get a bad bookkeeper and I had a good one before, but they won't know that till it's too late, you've already lost the client. And Bob, to kind of drill down on what you just said, because what you said was gold and you, you can more directly connect it to, to immediate and tangible ROI as well as to this feeling of trust, because I can show you exactly how much I saved you in bad debt expense, how much I saved you in interest expense by taking that DSO, accelerating the timetable, using the infusion of cash to clear the debt schedule. Um, All of these kinds of things have tangible financial measurements. I can put in front of a client and say, you paid me X, I made you Y. And you're right. Both the intangible feeling of trust and the tangible... Financial return on investment means a thousand dollars a month is chicken scratch, right? You should be getting three, four, five, or even more. One of the firms we just I'm coaching right now, she just quoted eight, yeah, for controller, not even for CFO, just controllership and accounting, eight thousand a month. And the client didn't blink, yeah, probably
1: underpriced it and didn't know it. We've all made that mistake many times, but and uh, she might
0: even have underpriced it at eight. You're absolutely right. So, so I'm going to just kind of unpack what Bob's saying here. I'm going to give you the final word. What he's saying is, there's a lot of M and A action taking place in the space. It's driven heavily, but not solely, by PE. Kaz is maybe not going to be the only king on the throne, but a king on the throne. It's going to be a huge emphasis for large firms. He hadn't said it explicitly, but it's true, and he would agree with me. Most large firms don't know how to do it well, which is implied in they they want to buy the IP. So right. if you want to buy a firm in here, you want to buy a firm with strong IP and $1,000 in and up, you probably already know that. If you want to sell a firm, this may be new information for you. Get everybody up to 1000 a month. Get it up even higher than that on your average revenue per client. Get the gross profit margins up. Build a system that scales, and you will make yourself a very favorable seller. If you're in here and you have no intention to sell in the next five to 10, do it anyway. Yeah, you do it anyway. Because the criteria for increased valuation is the criteria for strong and profitable operations. Bob, final word. I'd rather double my income by working
1: with clients who are willing to pay for things rather than stretch myself thin. I mean, get back to the main concept, of CAS bookkeeping was put down to a lower level years ago because it didn't have anywhere near the rates of the tax, the tax of the audit people, it's come up huge because of all these independence issues and the ability to scale and really get in and sell advisory. To me, that's your leverage. Um, that's a big leverage point. And firms are struggling to build their advisory departments out. That's why I think CAS people should be more advisory focused and what they're saying to people because they can uncover all kinds of opportunities in a monthly
0: or quarterly call up
1: client. They and,
0: absolutely can. And if yeah. you're again in here and you're not a CPA or MBA, you can too. Yeah, they, all
1: right, a CPA. No, absolutely.
0: (laughs) I just think I have to keep coming back to that, Bob, because there's so many non-credential folks that listen to our podcast and they tend to self-disqualify themselves out of this conversation. And I want them to hear me. You're capable of so much more. I promise you are. And it's not that hard. You just have to go get a little bit of training, get that confidence level up and go start talking with the client. Bob, it is fantastic having you on. Thanks for guiding us through this whole kind of Murky, crazy world that's happening with M i I'm looking forward to see what happens next with AI. But that's oh another, yes, because AI is going to be another big change. Podcast. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it was great to have you on the show, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com/podcast.